welcome to the Andy Rowe Show. Lucy Lewis was the UK's first female bomb disposal expert. She's going to tell you some intense stories about when it's gone well and when it's gone wrong. She's going to let you in on some little known secrets as well, like how to defuse a bomb, how to booby trap a house, and even where loads of live German World War II bombs still lie unexploded just below the surface in London. Hope you enjoy the episode. You know how important it is to keep your immune system as strong as possible, particularly coming into the cold and flu season. The guys over at Suns are always looking out for ways to help you with your health, and they've done it again with their new Ultimate Immune Health Supplement. It's formulated from 11 powerful ingredients and includes all the key vitamins, minerals, and amino acids you need, like D, C, B, zinc. But its special ingredient is the beta-glucan Wellmune, clinically proven in 12 scientific trials. So if you're already taking a multivitamin or are looking for something to strengthen your immune system this autumn, then check out suns.co.uk and use the code ANDY30 to get a massive 30 quid off your first order. It's the perfect supplement for fighting viruses as well as recovery from sport and weekend hangovers. And importantly, by using our code, you'll be supporting the podcast and the work we do. Lucy, thank you very much for coming on the show. You're welcome. First question, let's just dive straight into it. Yeah. Like, what bomb disposal, why? Why would you jump straight into that? <laughs> like, I will talk about the story, but like, what, what are you thinking? I wasn't thinking at all. We were, um, I didn't have any say in it. I didn't volunteer at all. I was voluntold. They put us all in a, in a room at uh, the end of our Santos course. And they said, right, you're off to Germany, you're going here, you're going there. And they came to me and, and the colonel said, uh, have you got a steady hand? And I said, no. I said, I've got malaria. You know, I've, I've been off sick all week with it. You know that. And she went, oh, yeah, yeah, never mind about that. She said, you're off to be a bomb disposal officer. First I'd ever heard of it. Um, when I joined Santos, women weren't allowed to do that sort of thing. And whilst mm. I was at Santos, they changed the rules. So um, I just sort of stunned, sat there a bit stunned, really, thinking, oh, okay. Um I remember going to a phone to tell my mother what I was going to, where I was going to go. So I phoned to say, I'm going to Chatham in Kent. And she said, oh, good. She said, I don't have to worry about you going to Northern Ireland. And I said, no, I said, I'm going to be a bomb disposal officer. So exciting. I was really excited by it by that point because I knew that I'd be the first. Mm. My um, course, we had the first woman helicopter pilot, me, and then the first woman to sit on a horse uh, on parade with the household cavalry which was an, an equally big thing. Really? Yeah, that was a massive thing. Um, and we were going to be going out there as be little experiments and see how we got on. Why is, they, it, why is it such a massive thing for a woman to ride a horse in the because cavalry? It's, uh, because women aren't allowed in the household cavalry. And to be on a horse in the household cavalry alongside the household cavalry would be uh, a massive thing. This was the 80s, wasn't it? This was indeed 1989. Wow, it kind of feels a little bit earlier than that. That's kind of. <laughs> it feels such a long time ago. You had to leave if you got pregnant. It was the fastest way out of the army. Sixteen weeks and you're out. Um, Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And and it was only been it hasn't been that long since you had to leave when you got married. Things the are changing are pretty different. quickly now as well, aren't they? They are changing fast. There's a lot less tolerance everywhere for yeah, making I mean, women second some, class. Some bits have evolved a little bit faster than others. So um, we still haven't seen. Um, there's a, still a few firsts to go, but I was lucky enough to uh, to meet the woman cadet at Santa just before she was commissioned uh, a couple of years ago, um, and she was going to be the first woman who was going to be commissioned into an infantry regiment. So she's known nothing except parity with the guys mm. all the way through, and that that was quite something. 
Is the training the same? Because not just in the books, but like the actual physical side of it. Because that's is, the thing that now, we will talk yeah. about. It, it is now um, where they have mixed platoons. So the men train alongside the women um, and they are just soldiers or just officer, officer cadets, what have you, and they train together. Um, but back in my day, no, we were, we were trained separately. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that a little bit? I mean, we're going off track a bit, but the concern that you hear from male elite officers yes. things like because you're allowed to have females in the SAS now yes, yeah. uh, and the concern is um, not if they're good enough but that a guy will naturally a male will naturally try and protect a, a female if they're under fire or that um, you know you might have a relationship might start mm-hmm. or that a female is not going to be physically as strong as a male mm-hmm. in, in those sort of situations what what are your thoughts on that? Um, well, that's interesting because men will always fight. They will always defend their mates. They fight not for their country or their flag or whatever. They fight for the mate and for the bloke beside them. Um, so they will go and put their lives at risk to save the soldier next to them because that's kind of what you do. So it doesn't really matter whether the soldier's male or female. That instinct to fight together as a, as a bonded unit is the same whatever. Um, so, so I don't get that bit. Um, the women being strong enough, um, well, that's what the standards are there for. So if you can't carry this amount of weight, then run eight miles and then pick up a soldier and carry them over uh, ditches and what have you. If you can't do that, then you're out. So, and if you can do that, then you should be allowed to do it. Mm. Um, and the same argument's always put for, for people, say, training to join the SAS, where, I mean, men die in the attempt to join. It's that hard. Yeah. Um, but we don't stop them and say, oh, no, no, you might get hurt. We won't let you try. You know, if, if you're up to the mark, you, you, you go. Um, so the standards are, are there for a reason. So, yeah, if you meet them, you should, yeah, you should be allowed. You've had all those questions before, haven't you? <laughs> One or two. <laughs> <laughs> and I've noticed that those people that, that turn around and say, no, no, it will weaken. Um, oh, yeah, I've said to me a lot. I said, oh, no, the men will try and protect you. And the very first time when I had to go out to the long walk and, and walk towards a live bomb, my troop, they turned around and said, off you go, boss. You know, no, <laughs> no problem whatsoever. They do their job, I do mine. Mine was to get out there and walk across and see what it is we've just dug up. Um, and, you know, there was no problem. We'll get into that yeah. shortly because some good yeah, stories yeah. to chat about. You were in a pub once and someone, didn't the guy kind of have a crack at you or something what was yeah, that story yeah, was it, i was in a uh, my own mess i was in a um at the bar where i invited some officers from a neighboring mess to come and join us and sort of party time as usual um and this chap came up to me and he said uh do you spell your name with a b or a d and i was a bit confused because i thought my name hasn't got a b or a d in it and i sort of looked a bit odd i thought oh, i don't follow and he just said oh no he said are you a bike or a dyke he said, because as far as he was concerned, all women in the army were either one or the other. Jesus. And I just thought, where do I go with that? You were an officer at the time. Like yeah, you yeah, could yeah. Have... He was an officer. I was an officer. He was younger than me. And he was in my home, my, my, my mess where I live. Um, and, he, and, and I was just so shocked. Um, really, because, because I wasn't expecting it from another officer. I wasn't expecting it from an officer who's younger than me. So not, you know, you know someone who's... who's living life 20 years ago um and i i even that today i don't remember what i did or said 
Um, I would love, there are lots of things now that I'd like to have done and said, but um, <laughs> at the time, I don't think I did anything. I just kind of went, oh, my word. Uh, and I was military police captain at the time. Oh. And that's kind of... Oh, God. There, there's, a bit of a, there's normally a bit of a barrier there. And, yeah. and it takes a sort of brave chap to, to come and say something like that to a military police captain. Oh, it takes a brave chap to say that to anyone. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't really drunk either. Um, oh, and God. I'm just thinking, even now, it, it, it shocks me now. God. But it's the one thing that stuck out. The rest of it, I've got a thick skin. You can kind of rise above it. Um, and to be honest, as a bomb disposal officer, that protected me from a lot of... Mm. Um, misogynistic kind of um, digs, if you like. A lot yeah. of my friends at Santos, they suffered when they went to their regiments. Um, but I didn't. Um, and that's because I wore a bomb. Yeah, well, that's, that's a pretty handy little skill set to have <laughs> in the army. When you're um, going through all your tests and exams and things to pass, you can't just pass, can you? So what was that like for you? Um that was a lot of pressure because the person who had uh, I was following immediately before me had failed uh, the exams uh, and been posted elsewhere, which is why I was drafted in at the last minute. Um, but uh, there was a woman, Kate, um, and she passed the course before me, sort of a year, I think, two years before me. Um, so I knew it could be done and I knew I wouldn't be the first person to pass the course. So that took a little bit of pressure off. But everyone was watching. Um, I knew I had to do better. Um, than than the norm. I knew I had to really hit the top marks on all of the tests. Um, and mostly because, not so much because of being a woman, but it's because I was going to go into the regiment next door to the school um, and I was going to be uh, an operational bomb disposal officer and you can't afford to, to you know, just scrape a pass. Nah. Not when the guys are sitting there, you know, following you and... and <laughs> You can't, doing things with you, you know. You have to, you have to have some credibility in the regiment. Yeah, you can't be pretty sure you know how no. to undo this bomb. And, no, you yeah. need to, you need to be confident, and you need to know what you're doing. So, when I did my final, uh, well, there's one particular test where you immunise a fuse uh, against the clock. And oh, so yeah, you've got the clock yeah, ticking, don't I've you? I've got the clock ticking. So, talk me through the whole situation because, like, well, that sounds stressful. Yeah, it is. Um, I, most of the regiment at the time, we were involved in iron bombs. So those are bombs dropped during World War II. So they're big things, size of a sofa kind of size. Right, about um, two metres long. Yep, yep. Right. They can be anything from um, sort of the size of a propane gas canister up to the size of a Volkswagen, you know, kind of big things. Shit. Um, and um, the, most of the, over here, there'll be the German bombs that are found, and they have fuses in the side of the casing. And to defuse those, that's really what the bread and butter of the regiment does, is, is these big iron bombs. Um, and you have to drill into the head of the fuse with a little hand drill, a little tiny plastic hand drill. And you drill into the fuse and then you... With a hand drill? With a hand, oh, yeah, you don't use power tools. It's, it's a little tiny hand drill, like a little whisk you used to get at you know, cookery glasses. It's a little hand thing. So yeah, it sounds a little bit village like. It is. It's completely. It's completely nuts when you first sort of introduced and you think it's going to be something high tech and something you plug in. But no, no, no. It's a hand drill. Uh, but then you can be really precise with a hand drill. You can. You can. Uh, it's you know, power tools are just a little bit too much. Right. You can go off target a little bit yes. quicker. With the power yeah, and tool. you don't yeah. want any vibrations. So, um, so a hand drill, and you make a little hole, and then the you... clock's ticking. The clock's ticking. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, that's in the exam they make the. I mean, in the real life, you've got as long as you need to do it. There's a different stress involved in the They're fact that it's a to real bomb. Put yeah. some stress in there. Yeah. Um, and you attach a little needle, and then you put a rubber tube on it, and you um, 
you insert a saline solution, just a salt solution, and you then flip a switch and then you use a bicycle pump to pressurise the salt solution going all the way into every little corner of the field. You use a bicycle pump. A bicycle. Again, The tools you guys have got are just <laughs> state-of-the-art, aren't they? It's something that you can find whenever you need one. Got and um, you can be very precise about the amount of pressure that you use and it's going to work. Uh, and many gadgets and things don't like getting in the rain and we're always nearly in, always in a, in a bottom of a puddle somewhere on a building site somewhere, so um, power tool's not so helpful. Uh, so you use a bicycle pump and you pressurise um, all this salt solution working its way around and it neutralises the crystals inside the fuels. So you, you then retreat for a couple of hours and let it all soak and then you go back and then you can then cut cut the whole fuse pocket out of the side of the bomb. So that's the test that, we're, that we, the exam we have to do is to into um, work out what kind of fuse it is, drill in the right place to the right depth and then go through the whole procedure. And every instructor in the school came to watch me do it. Um, How many people was there? The pressure. Right. Well, I did. I could hear a, a doorful. They were, they were they were behind me, um, and I could hear them all shuffling in in the corridor as each came and put their head around the door. And there was a little gang of them in the doorway, um, trying to to watch, make sure that uh, I could do it. And I knew that they would go back to the regiment and say, "Yes, you know, she got the thumbs up, or or mm, maybe not." Um, so uh, so yeah, a bit of pressure for there, but uh, yeah. And. You passed, obviously. Passed. Yes. yes how, how well? Like, is there, when you're um, diffusing a bomb, is it, you got it all right? Or? Yeah, no, no, for that, I had to get it all right. No, that, that was an absolute, I had to get it all right. Um, so, yeah, that was 100% for that one. Um, how, does everyone get it all right? Like, I mean, no, <laughs> let's just rephrase that. I don't want to, <laughs> does everyone get it right? No, does, do, how often do people get that wrong? Um, well, if you make a big mistake, then, then yeah, that, that's the end of that. Like in your class, yeah. were there people that failed There would be it? people that um, either took more time or did it with, with uh, or it took a second attempt to drill into the fuse okay. or didn't quite choose the right drill bit first before they started or little things that you can get wrong without getting it completely wrong. Yeah, but you nailed it first crack yeah, with the crowd. Yeah, yeah, I... I Marked it with a little pen before I drilled it. I was very careful with that. I, I remember awesome. the drilling part. Is is that stands out as like I did it yesterday. Yeah, it was such an important thing. The main thing you mentioned before, World War Two bombs, isn't there? That's that's your, that's your yeah. bread and butter. Like, there's yeah, a lot yeah. of those. I, yes. I saw one in the news maybe about five years ago. There's probably more than that. Um, yeah, yeah. When someone was digging out their basement. Yes. Um, this must be like the most common thing that you guys deal with, right? Um, well, actually, the most common thing they deal with is, is sort of um, shells and mortars on um, former um, artillery ranges. So whenever the MOD's got lots of... Um, we've got lots of ranges at the moment, um, and they, whenever they get sold off or they get cleared, and we hand them over for housing, as, as has happened in a lot of places. So we have battle area clearance guys that go and they go over with a metal detector over every inch of MOD land before it can be handed over to civilians to build on. Fair enough. So it's, it's kind of important. Yeah. That we make sure we haven't left anything behind that we didn't know we've left behind. So with a lot of, um, as the army is shrinking and lots of bases have gone, so um, the, the place where I trained has gone and the huge regiment at the bottom of the hill that was there, the training regiment, that's all gone. Um, and lots of barracks have been handed over, so we do a lot of searching of, of MOD land right. um, and and regular clearances of places where they do firing ranges. Wasn't there a situation where some you went you got a call out to a house, and the yeah. topsoil or the soil yes. had come from? Yeah, one of those places. 
Yeah, can you exactly. talk me through that yeah. story? Um, that was my, my, my first ever uh, emergency call out. It was Sunday afternoon uh, and called to a, a new housing estate. This is, this is where you say so you get an emergency call out. Yes. It's to a housing estate. Yeah. How are you getting there? Like, what's the. Um, because it must be a bit of like. A bit of like a. I'm thinking sirens, all that kind of stuff. Like, what's, what's um, what does it look well, like? It was the day we didn't have. We, we didn't have really mobile phones properly. Uh, we had we used to carry a little pager. Right. Uh, so it was everyone on duty had a pager, and the pager would bleep, and you it would just say phone the ops room. So you'd phone the ops room, and it would say no, we've got we someone's found a bomb. Uh, it would they they call the police. The police call the um, the EOD centre, and then they, they then task the nearest unit. So and they said, yeah, you're the nearest person. So off you go. So I have a duty driver um, who drives a long wheelbase Land Rover. And we would then, he would then come pick me up and we would then go towards this. We, we know roughly where we're going, but this is in the days before sat now. So you kind of work out where we're going. And we would normally have a police escort um, because although we have blue lights on the top of ours, we don't have uh, a sirens on it. And uh, we tend to follow a police car who's already got blue lights and sirens. So the, they arranged for the us to pick up a police car at the roundabout sort of on the net, on the main road um, and they then drove us to this housing estate in Kent and um, there's a reason why you don't have the red lights isn't there uh, well, well, well we don't have the, the yeah back it well back in wartime um, you weren't allowed to have blue lights they didn't have lights on in, in blackout they didn't have yeah. lights on vehicles at all so they painted the, the front wings of the vehicle were painted red uh, to show that it's a bomb disposal vehicle and they have to be let through um, so that everyone who's on the you know on the cordon can see that this is the what this is the vehicle to let through. So and the vehicles um, they still now the Royal Engineer uh, bomb disposal still have red wings on their vehicles, oh. um, and that's the equivalent of red lights in the in the black in the uh, in the blackout. I see, I see. So uh, we have the blue lights now. So we followed the police car, went got to this housing estate, and found this house. And there's a policeman outside, and he says, you know, there's a hole in the back garden, and I've been told that this chap was digging in the garden and he'd found what he thought was a bomb and the policeman had a quick look and goes yeah that looks like a bomb to me so um they hadn't touched it so i then went round uh, took a camera um and went round the back and and i could see there's a hole um at the back fence and and there's a spade uh, a fork rather sticking out of the hole and then you can see the great big dents as he's run down the garden and the the the, the footprints were getting wider and wider apart as he'd, he'd absolutely tanked back to the house as fast as his little legs could carry him. Yeah. Um, and he'd only, this was his first forkful, um, and he'd gone clunk straight away. He was setting out this, you know, this brand new house, just just a sea of mud in the back garden, um, and he was setting out flower beds. So, um, so I went and had a little look, uh, and and it was an artillery shell, uh, and it was smooth. There was no, it was it was just solid metal. There's nothing explosive about it. It was, and I was so I was so disappointed that there's nothing to defuse. This is it. This is my first call out, and all I've come out is to something that I just mustn't drop on my foot. That's the, you know, we call it a DDT. You know, don't drop on toe. That's the only danger is going to be is is if you drop it. Um, so I was very disappointed, um, and I was said to my corporal, I said, "Oh no, that's no good. You know, not the big bomb here. And that's, yeah. you know, this isn't this isn't the big one we're looking for." But, and then I suddenly thought, oh, what, "Why is it here?" How did this shell get into this brand new housing estate? And it's only just below the topsoil. I'd say it was his first forkful. 
And normally people find these things when they're laying drains or something and they're going quite deep. Um, and then we had a little look around and thought, well, if this, if we found one, we're going to find more. Um, and then we had to then get metal detectors out and search the rest of the garden because they bought all the topsoil had come from one of these disused military ranges. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, that, was, that turned out to be slightly bigger. When you were training and like some of the first bombs that you come across were uh, the earthquake bomb and the V2, yes. right? Can you tell me about those? Because they're, they're quite famous, like the V2 is quite famous. The V2 especially. is quite famous, yes. Um, but the first big bomb I saw was Grand Slam, which is a British bomb dropped in, on Germany. Uh, and it's 22,000 pounds of it. And so it's the size, it's bigger than my house. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's vast, this bomb. Um, How, what would that be in kilos, do you reckon? Tristan's mouth's wide open. So <laughs> <laughs> no, it's written in the book. <laughs> yeah, so that's twenty two thousand pounds. So that's, okay, that's, that's that's the size of a uh, it's taller than a house. Taller than a house. Yeah, that's the, that's the biggest bomb. Size of a bus or? Yeah, yeah, it's certainly yeah. yeah okay, now yeah, now we've got close, a visual. Get, get, getting close to that. Okay, so it's yeah, a big it's, mother. It's a big thing. Big thing. And uh, so, yeah, there was that. And then in the museum, there is um, uh, an EAD Technicals Information Centre that's next door to the regiment. We call it a museum, but basically it's, it's a technical information centre. And it has a lot of different examples of every kind of um, munition and weapon. And there they had um, a V2 rocket. Um, and the top was taken off um, because it's, it's so tall. I mean, you wouldn't be able to fit it in a building. So the top's taken off and sitting next to it. Um, uh, but even so, it still just kind of scrapes the, the ceiling of this hall. I mean, it is massive. Uh, and it's got a little sort of um, like an air, airplane steps that go up the side um, of this, this thing so that you can climb up and look inside it. And it was just the most incredible jaw-dropping thing to see a V2. They are just sort of evil personified. Yeah. Um, the outer casing was almost, it looked like sort of canvas. It looked, so it looked a bit kind of old-worldy. But inside it was, uh, for its time, it was the highest tech thing, the state of the art of, of bombs. And it gave no warning whatsoever, unlike the V1, where you could hear it coming. Right. Um, the V2, you just, all, all of a sudden, you know, half a street disappears. There was no warning, no, no. Knowledge. Oh, because I, I thought that you'd hear, so it was the V1 where, the, so. The V1's the doodle bug, where you hear it, this pup, 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 pup noise, so, and so then it goes quiet as it falls. Yeah, so for. If you're listening to this and you've got no idea what we're talking about, yeah. so the V1 and V2, they were launched by Germany uh, to land on London. Yes. And they were basically bombs that flew themselves. And the V1, you would hear it, and then you'd hear this pop, 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 pop. Yeah. And then the motor would stop. Yes. And then it would just go. Then it would fall. And yes. crash into London. Yes. The V2 is a bigger V2 version. It's a rocket. So it's it's a, like a proper. It, it's a bit like um, it looks like um, Wallace and Gromit's Grand Day Out rocket. It's it's a proper rocket. Yeah. As opposed to a doodlebug, which is like a bomb with a sort of little firework attached to the back of it. Right. Um, and this rocket would go straight up and come straight down. Um, and it's it's supersonic. I mean, it's it's so fast you you, you don't hear a thing. You just as a massive, just a massive explosion. Because the V one, some pilots would go and try and they, they would. Yeah, you they could would... tip it with the wings. You could go and nudge it, and and yeah, that was a definitely a. Um, a but V two, you ain't you ain't no, getting close you, to it. No, not no. at all. You're getting out of the way of it. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. comes it comes from the sky. You'd never see it. It's just so fast. So, um, and that was far scarier 
Um, and that's why it's such a frightening weapon, because you'd be happy going along, you know, listening to the birds and the bees, next minute, whoomph, half a street gone. Uh, and that's a V2. Uh, so, yeah. And so did you, did you, like, I'm, I'm assuming you probably wouldn't have had to practice like no. on those because no, they're no, obviously no, long no. gone. You're not going to find them. No, no, we're not going to find. They're not going they to find win off. those. But that's part of the sort of evolution of having bombs that were just dropped from a plane going past to intercontinental ballistic missiles and then smart yeah. bombs and all of those um, bombs that find their own target. Yeah. yeah, it's part of the evolution of bombs. Talk to me about the Montgomery. Oh yes. The SS Richard Montgomery, it, uh, it was a Liberty ship um, and uh, it had a lot of munitions on board and it ran aground in 1944, just off Sheerness, um, and it's been stuck on the sandbank ever since. Um, and its masts, it's so in such shallow water that the masts are visible in all seas, low tide, high tide, you can still see the masts. Um, but it has a lot of explosives on board, I think. Still? Um, yes. It still has thousands of tons of high explosives on board. Um, and uh, it's busy slowly deteriorating. I mean, it's it's monitored. There's an exclusion zone around it so that you don't go near it. And it is monitored and surveyed quite a lot to see how far it's deteriorating. And I understand they're now talking about removing the masts um, because the mast is busy putting pressure on the hull underneath. But that would be a very difficult and dangerous job to remove the mast. Can you just fire a missile into it? Uh, well, you could, but it would then it would then explode, um, and that would cause a massive... I mean, there was another ship they, they tried to, to um, clear in the 60s, um, and that was a couple of miles offshore, and that went up with a, with, um, you know, with earthquake-type force. That was a massive explosion. Really? Yeah, yeah. So, so we're not going to... Um, they're not going to do that, or it's too close to the shore. But it's... Won't it blow up eventually? It might not. One day it's got to blow up, surely. <laughs> no, it, it might not. It depends. It how might it not. It sounds yeah. like you're saying that, yeah, hopefully it won't. But <laughs> Well, when I was very close to it, I hoped it wasn't going to go. Um, yeah, talk but, talk to me about your involvement with it. Uh, only in that we were training on the, the mud flats that are not that far from the Montgomery. Uh, they're in that area anyway, of Shubriness. And um, there are long mud flats, and so you've gone kind of got twelve kilometres of these mud flats. So a couple of times a day, uh, a couple of times a day, you've got all of these miles of mud flat, and that's where we practice um, blowing up and defusing thousand-pound bombs, because you can't really do that on on land anywhere because you're going to get in the way of something. Mm. So we go out onto these mud flats to um, to practice um defusing them and what we do is we, we crack them open and try and burn off the contents it's called conflagration um and it's it's one of the ways it's one of, a risky way of getting rid of something um i think a, a bomb team in holland recently tried to do that with a bomb that then exploded um so it's it's uh, it works but it's a risky thing to do because it might well go off with its full force so we do that out on the mud flats didn't you have it didn't you overdo a rocket thing <laughs> yes. out in the mud flats yeah it was it was a thousand um it was the rocket motor for surface to air missile um so quite a fat rocket and the motor is basically a low explosive like a rocket pushing um and we were practicing clearing these rockets um they were very similar to the scud rockets that 
were just becoming a problem. And scud missiles from Iraq. Those yes, ones. well, that was it. Was the time just before the, the um, first Gulf War. You were training with one of those. Well, we're training that sort of thing. That high idea of having a, a surface-to-air missile, which is right. what it is. But one of those big rocket motors. And uh, we've been practicing cracking it open and burning off the contents. And we've been doing it all day, and that was fine. We, we got it down to a fine art. We knew exactly where to put the charge and what, how, to, how to make it work. Um, and it was my last attempt. And the, the tide was coming in, so we're paddling about, um, keeping the fuse out of the water, sort of. Um, so we paddled about and set up the rocket, and we then went, got back in the, in the um, truck and drove to the safety point and went to watch it go off. And for every second I'm out with the timing, I owe the lads a pint. Because you, when, you, when you cut the fuse, you cut exactly how long it's going to take. So you should be able to light that fuse and then look at your watch and go, right, three, two, one, bang, and it should go. And so every second I'm out, I owe the lads a pint. So um, I, I was watching this thing very carefully in my binoculars, and I was expecting to see a little tiny white puff of smoke. Not hear anything, but just see a little puff of smoke as it, it fires correctly. And we were all watching it to see that I was on time. And I watched it and nothing happened. And nothing happened. And then the lads started cheering because you know, I, I owe them some, some beer. And, and all of a sudden we couldn't see it. We couldn't see anything at all. There was no puff of smoke. There was no bomb. There was, no, there was nothing. It was, just, it was just huge mushroom cloud. The whole lot had just disappeared. The whole horizon disappeared. And we all went, oh dear. You've blown up the Montgomery. Yeah, it was just one of those, something has, and I have to say my heart just sank. It just, I didn't know what, it just, oh. Right. Like how big was this mushroom cloud? It, it was vast. Just, well, just to clear that up, she yeah. hadn't blown up the Montgomery. No, I have not blown up the Montgomery, it's still there. Um, no, I have, it, 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 well, I, it filled my, my binoculars just disappeared. You know, it just filled my vision. And the, then there was a, a delay and then a very loud bang. Um, and, and what had happened, I'd got been given a rocket motor that was a different type to the one that we were training on. And it's one where you cannot crack it open like that. That will cause it to, uh, the pressure to build. And there was no release for the pressure, so it would then high order and I explode with its full force and then some. So, yeah, it turned out that um, it wasn't my fault. There was a, an inquiry into it and um, it wasn't my fault, luckily. It, it was a, an error at the range where we'd been given this this um, rocket that shouldn't have been used that, like that. But it went. It taught me that you can make a mistake in training. You know, just mm. because you're training doesn't mean to say it's safe. Mm. Um, so I learned to be super careful, super careful after that. It's one way to learn how to be super careful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It didn't need my eardrums anyway. So, yeah. um, But no, there was no... Uh, lasting damage but yeah we all just thought okay we need to be just because we're training and these yeah. are training rockets or what have you no they can still go it wasn't just the bombs that you were called to defuse that were dangerous though when you as a, a bomb disposal officer you're quite a high value target for especially in the uh, 90s for ira yeah yeah and in in the 1990s just being in the <laughs> army was a very dangerous occupation um, there were a number of recruiting sergeants that were blown up and killed around this time. So um, Your barracks was attacked. Yeah, so, so many barracks were attacked. In fact, almost every barracks I've ever lived in has been blown up at some point. Really? Um, so, yeah, it, it, was, it was a very real risk. We couldn't, go, we couldn't wear uniform out in public. You had to cover it up whenever you went anywhere. It was you, always in the back of your mind. Uh, you always had to search vehicles all the time. You couldn't park a vehicle outside a building. A military bu- a building in case there was car bombs. Um, careful with letter bombs. There were, you know, it was it was a daily event. Mm. This, the, the security. 
And when you think of the, the number of bombs in that particular year, sort of 1990, when I qualified, we had a, a major attack or major bomb every single week that summer. They blew up the Baltic, they blew up um, the part of London, um, which is why we have the Gherkin now, it, it destroyed the building that was there before. And you know, had an air marshal who was, um, who was shot nine times in his living room. We had a young recruit shot dead on Litchfield train station. Um, it, every single week there was another attack or a bomb of some sort through the whole summer. It was relentless. So that was kind of the backdrop to being a bomb disposal officer at the time. So um, we were very aware of our personal security. So every, all soldiers go for runs. We, we run all the time. Um, but you couldn't go certain routes. You couldn't wear anything that identified you as a soldier. Um, so therefore you couldn't wear the same kit as the person next to you because that would then link you. And so going to work, um, and I lived at the bottom of the hill and the regiment, the bomb disposal regiment's at the top of the hill, and there is nothing else on that road apart from the regiment at the top. So anyone on that road is going either to or from the bomb disposal regiment. There's no member of the public there. It's just soldiers going to and from work. So, so if they want to find you, they know exactly yes. where your choke point is. Exactly. And there's no escape. It's sort of fenced on both sides. They've got no escape on that road to get anywhere. So the only thing we could do to sort of protect ourselves individually was to either uh, cycle, drive or walk and set off at different times um, because you're always going to be on that road. And then it, it kind of it becomes sort of potluck as to whether they catch you on the road. But I made sure that I never left, um, I never you know, left the house at the same time every day, never took the car two days running, never, you know, just, just randomise everything that you do. And I do that even now. I walk my dogs at different times of the day, different routes. Um, still. Still. I, I would never, I use different car parks in Cambridge. I never park my car in the same place all the time. Just never, I would, just wouldn't occur to me to do that. Are there quite a few hangovers you've got from your time there, like, like that? Certainly that bit, but then I don't think about why I do that. It's a bit like putting a seatbelt on. You don't think oh, yeah. this is to stop me going through the windscreen. It's just what you do when you get in a car. So, yeah, I do a few things. Um... I open parcels standing up, always. Why is that? Because if you're sitting down uh, and it's a letter bomb, it blows your legs off. So I always open parcels standing up. The great thing about this podcast is we are full of helpful hints <laughs> for better living yeah, yeah. in your daily lives. Yeah, so I open parcels standing up um, and never over a flat surface because that deflects the blast into your face. So, um, so my kids tease me that I open parcels standing in the middle of the kitchen. Um, and on occasions I have dropped the contents of the parcel, um, but because I will not open it over a, a over a flat surface or, or or sitting down. Was as far as like when someone sends a, a letter bomb or a parcel, how small can a letter bomb be? Could it be in an envelope? Yes, easily. Really? Yes. Someone could send you a bomb in an envelope. Yes. And what sort of damage would that do? Uh, it depends what's in it. Um, you could make things that are corrosive. So that if, when you think, uh, oh yeah, if you think of little sachets, I'm going to give people ideas here, but you know those little sachets of uh, soya, um, soy sauce that you get with, with yeah. something yeah. like that, if you had that, an acid in that, that would then go on the person's hands as they open it, you could, you could that would fit in a bomb there, and you could, you could, you could do that. What about explosive, like something? Um, yeah, you could make that super thin, yes. You think, remember the um, birthday cards that you would open, it plays a little tune? Yeah. Well, that could easily be turned into something that does more than play a little tune. So, yeah, you, you can make them quite small. And that would, you could kill someone with that? Yeah, you could. Um, 
you would you'd be un, you'd be unlucky to be killed by it. Uh, depends what went went in it, but you would certainly you could certainly burn and ser- seriously injure people. Yeah. And was that was that quite common? Was that back in the, the day? Risk, there was a whole range of, of letter bombs that went round, and mm. um, they kind of used to post sort of eight at a time into various addresses. So, um, but that's when we ended up uh, all of the MOD we had sort of screening on the post, and Houses of Parliament would have screening on the post because they used to be letter bombs used to be quite a regular thing. You were told to go and prepare mm-hmm. for someone to try and bomb you a female weren't you and and make it specific yeah talk me through what you did there Um, and and why you had to do officers in the regiment he then he said reminded me that now that i was going to be you know and there'd been quite a lot of publicity that i was an operational bomb disposal officer and he said that i needed to make sure to to realize that this would make me vulnerable and i needed to think through how i was vulnerable that other people weren't so he told me to think through all the actions that I might take that other people don't. So, and that's how certainly how the IRA were targeting people in Northern Ireland, where they'd find one thing that that person touched that nobody else did. So they said, you know, think about a bomb that would only that you could design that would only kill a woman, um, and not a man that she might live with or, or anybody else. And so I then thought about what do I do that my fellow officers, male officers, didn't do. And I realised that what I, do, what I did do was I used the delicate cycle on the washing machine. And none of them did. They put all of their things on maximum heat, pulled it, put it straight in, all in one single wash. Chuck it all Just in there. Chuck it all in. Whites, colours, throw Never it touched in. any buttons other than the on and off. That was it. <laughs> and I was the only one that changed the settings on the washing machine. Um, and so that's why I designed a bomb that would fit behind the laundry, uh, the detergent uh, container on the washing machine. And that it would be a, a shape charge that as you went, bent down to switch the machine on, having changed the settings to delicate, it would fire as you bent down. Because that way I could work out where the persons would be, physically would be in front of the machine. So you, you primed it by putting it on the delicate cycle and it was detonated by touching the on off and therefore that that bomb would have killed me but not the 20 other people using the washing machine it would only have killed them Shit, that's smart so and i just sat there thinking you know but he said the act of thinking what do you do that no one else does yeah he said that is that's how they'll catch you because you're doing something that not everyone else is doing booby trapping is something that you guys train quite a bit in wasn't it yes. in, in was it didn't you like to have to set up in training, like a booby trap, a whole house. Yes, we did. That was the best part of the course. Yeah, we were told to put uh, it's at the IED phase, and we're, we're making and designing IEDs. Um, and we have to fit them as a, a terrace of derelict houses on the camp, and they're all kitted out with carpets, curtains, and furniture like real houses. And we're each given a house to set up, and we're told to put one of each type of booby trap. So that's something that's pressure related. There will be a trip wire. There's um. Um, light sensitive one there's all the different trigger mechanisms so we had to have one of each of those trigger mechanisms in this house and we then draw lots and swap houses and then get to clear each other so it's a bit like a you know treasure hunt but with forfeits so it's best part of the course that sounds so fun it is excellent fun and of course we're not using real explosives we're using a sound unit which makes a very loud bang i mean it makes you jump out of your skin um so you really don't want to set it off because it's it's you kind of you know you're on edge yeah, going yeah, in yeah, there. Yeah, 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 you yeah. really don't want to set these things off. You're so close. It's gonna it's gonna be painful if you if it goes off. 
So, um, so yeah, that's that's what we were doing, and and we're all suited up in the big bomb suit, um, and uh, we're, we're tasked to go and clear all these things. But we're army, and we occasionally we kind of overdo things a bit. So I haven't just put one of every booby trap. I've put as many as that little house will fit. I mean, a mouse can't cough without setting half of them off. I've put them everywhere. Uh, you know, every floorboard, all the stair, you know, anything they're going to touch, it's got it's got something behind it. Um, Did everyone do that, or were you just real niggly? The army ones. Uh, the, the RAF, I think, stuck to the rules and put one of each type. But no, the army, we just we just wired everything up. <laughs> we just we just love it because very rarely do you get the chance to actually catch people out. Yeah. And blow look up. at that tree over there. If you look at it for five seconds, it's blowing up. Yeah, yeah, it's gone. It's gone. Just don't touch a thing in this house. Um, and we reached centre. Obviously, we drew lots and to go and clear each other's houses. Um, and that was just the best part. Just absolutely loved it. You mentioned IEDs before. I mean, IEDs in the very, the very nature of the word, improvise. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They must come in all shapes and sizes. So when you go to yeah. diffuse one, it's not just about cutting the red wire. You, you, <laughs> these aren't standard issue things that, no. you know, it's not, it's no. not V2. You know, it's not something that you've seen a lot of. It could be anything, couldn't it? It, it could be completely unique. <clears throat> so you might have never have seen this sort before. Um, and, and it might not even be metal. So metal no, detectors all, can't get all. it. Definitely not metal. So yeah, no, you have to go with an open mind as to to what it is you might be looking at, mm. what you're looking for. Um, I guess you're not person finding it necessarily, are you? You're you're the person that when someone's found it, they coming found in, it and they say this is you know we need to clear this. So oh, yeah. we would use things like X-rays, mm. so you can then see what's wired to what. Uh, you can see how it's detonated because knowing how it's going to go bang. It's kind of important to stopping it from going bang. You must be absolutely bricking it, like, honestly. <laughs> like that's well, it it depends what it is because if if it's say like a letter bomb, for example, a letter bomb has to be quite robust because it's got to go through the postal system. So it's not going to go off if you just touch it. Otherwise, it would have gone off when the postman emptied the letterbox the first time around or whatever. Yeah. So it's quite robust and and it's going to go off. It's meant to go off by the person who's supposed to open the parcel. So it's quite. It's not quite. It's safe to be handled, if you like, because it's been handled by machines and people mm. up to this point. It's returned to sender. Yes, <laughs> that would be good if they put the address on it. It'd be lovely. Um, so it, it'll it'll go off either because you've disturbed some of the inner wiring or because it's exposed to light, and that's the one thing when you're opening a letter that you're exposing the contents to mm. light or to air. It could be um, if you, nowadays you get lots of parcels all wrapped in plastic. So it could well be that just opening the plastic would set it off, but basically handling it isn't. But if you x-ray it, you can then see exactly what's inside it, uh, and you do get used to seeing things on x-ray, and you can see what sort of things. And a bomb needs some sort of um, power to actually de- you know, to help it to detonate. So you, you know roughly what you're looking for, and you can then, you know, that then basically tells you how you're going to be clearing it. We talked about it before, earlier about world war ii bombs they're quite common in london aren't they yeah then i mean there's there's about over 70 that we know of uh, and we know where they are um but then of course you've got all the ones we haven't found yet so yes there will still be quite a few how do you know where they are and why why haven't they been disarmed well, um they would have, we, we know where they are mostly because um during world war ii we had um, arp wardens and fire watchers that would be on the roofs of buildings watching for planes dropping bombs so um, we often, they would have identified there's a crater, but the bomb hasn't gone off. So they will obviously, the pri- they'll prioritise the, um, the bombs, the unexploded bombs that were 
uh, most likely to cause damage, to stop the war effort or to, to injure people. So the urgent bombs were done first. And those that had dropped somewhere quite safe were at the bottom of the list. Mm. Um, and over time, they became abandoned bombs. So there's no point in risking digging them up and trying to defuse them because they're in places that would never be built on. So they might be in a London park, they might be in a graveyard or somewhere that we're not going to... We know it's there, but we're not going to disturb it. Yeah, because there's loads in the Thames and in London parks, isn't there? Yes. Well, the Thames ones... um, The Thames has an incredible tidal reach um, and it's got soft mud. So we don't know the location of any of the ones in the Thames, but they pop up on, you know, relatively regularly. Um, but what happened was um, about 10% of all bombs dropped didn't go off. Um, That's a lot of bombs. It's a lot. There's a lot that didn't go off. And they didn't go off for several reasons. Um, The most common being that the plane that dropped them was too low. Uh, Its height was too low at the time. And a lot of the German bombs, they had um, uh, a method of arming it. So there was little veins at the back of the bomb and the veins have to rotate a certain number of times in the airstream before they will line up and arm the bomb. So that way you, you're not flying around with a live bomb in your plane. Ah. Um, so the bomb is safe while it's in the plane, but it arms itself as it drops. Um, and Very that efficient. Reli- yeah, exactly. But that relies on the plane being at a certain height. Um, and if the plane had been had turned back by flak or um, barrage balloons or something like that, and it hadn't dropped its bombs on the target, it would then fly very low to avoid the anti-aircraft guns Mm. and it would fly low over the Thames because it can skim the Thames and therefore avoid the anti-aircraft guns Um, and it would then drop its bombs far too low so they wouldn't go off so they just sink to the bottom Uh and the plane can then escape with enough fuel to get home because obviously the fuel is is, um, only got the minimum it needs to drop the bombs and get back so that's why a lot of bombs were found in the Thames um, so they sink to the bottom uh, when they put the Thames barrier in we need to do quite a lot of searching and dredging and uh, all around if you like the, the the coastal barriers the coastal barricades so when they did the um, channel tunnel again there was a lot of dredgers and they dredged of course, bombs as well because there's tube lines that go underneath the absolutely there's all sorts of uh, yeah the channel tunnel was quite a big thing because every na- ev- every sort of generation has tested its guns by firing out to sea. So there's a little ring around the country of sort of Napoleonic cannonballs, and then there's a little ring a bit further out of First World War guns, and then there's a little bit ring further out of Second World War because you test the guns by firing out to sea. (laughs) And, of course, uh, all of those things got stuck in the dredger. Um, So, yeah, there's a a lot of things in the water. Wow. You diffused some of the UK's own bombs, though, didn't you, from World War II? Yeah. Talk me through uh, the, was it Easterly? Eastley Airport, yes. You have to remember that back in sort of um, early 1942, probably, um, we were very concerned about there being an invasion. And so we mined and bombed virtually everything that we could. So all the southern beaches, anywhere that you could land, were all mined and then closed off to the public. Because the last beach was only cleared from mines. 1972. 1972, the last beach that had mined was cleared. Now, my mother grew up in Devon, and she never went to the beach because they were all closed off because they were all mined. So yeah, she doesn't doesn't didn't know that the Devonshire beaches because they were all, they were closed off uh, on the South Devon coast. So um, they also put bombs uh, in the canals. They put um, a sort of pipe mines underneath all the railway points. 
um, and any airfield that was within an hour of the south coast was mined because the idea was that in the event of an invasion, the, they would blow up all of the airstrips in the south so that the, the Germans couldn't then refly in their fuel and their ammunition. So they would have to then bring everything they needed for their invasion, they would have to bring across, uh, across the channel and couldn't fly it in. And therefore they would get stuck and the invasion would not spread to the north of the country. So that was the, the basic plan of protecting anywhere that could aid an invasion. So they took away all the signposts, so you didn't know if you did invade, you wouldn't know where you were. Mm -hmm. All of those things, lots of measures for anti-invasion. And part of this was to put these massive 40-foot pipelines, um, all buried sort of at an angle underneath the runway at Eastley Airport in Southampton. And they were the, the pipes were then filled with cartridges of gelatine with a little pot on the end of each pipe. Um, and as the invasion was was underway, you then put a detonator in each of the pots and then the sort of last person there blew up the runway. Um, so although the detonators weren't there, because that's a really sensitive bit, the pipe mines full of explosives were still there. And although a lot of these were, were cleared after the war very slowly, um, some of them have not been cleared. And I was involved in one at Eastleigh Airport, um, where we were going to, they were going to expand the airport and therefore they needed to remove, to do that, they needed to remove the pipe mines. Because obviously it makes sense to leave them there if they're not going to go off all by themselves, and they probably wouldn't have done. It's only if you disturbed them. So um, we decided we would take over one weekend, and it was the biggest evacuation since World War Two to evacuate these houses around the airport while we, we dealt with all these... It was a six-mile radius, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was it was a, a big thing, and we had to divert the aircraft because obviously the blast goes upwards. So if they had gone off, that would have created, like what, a, around about just under six miles of... Well, it would, it's, there's damage, um, and there's, yeah, it, it, certainly within a quarter of a mile, you would have, yeah, you could have been killed if you'd been in, in a, within a quarter of a mile of it. But um, shrapnel goes a long way, so it would have broken windows, um, it would have cracked pipes, water pipes, gas pipes, all those sorts of things that, you know, uh, that Blast does. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so no, we worked on those, um, and we had one weekend to do it, to, to clear all of them. Okay. So um, let's go through the process. <laughs> what happened? Well, it took months of planning that I wasn't involved with, luckily. Um, but we had remote control um, HIMAC diggers, so great big sort of JCB diggers um, that are controlled remotely from um, a control box a few meters away, c connected by a cable. Um, and we were sitting in an armored personnel carriers, ancient armored personnel carriers, so that we can be near these diggers. But um, the diggers were then, you can then control with little, little levers and you could basically remotely use this digger and it would have to straddle where the mine was and then dig very gently starting at the shallow end and then and then dig down the mine um, and retreat slowly as it digs um, if that had gone off if the mine had gone off it would destroy the digger and the digger then obviously becomes shrapnel itself which is why we needed to be way out of the way in an armored vehicle in case the digger exploded so, hiding away with your screwdriver with your yeah. with your handheld screw yeah exactly exactly so um so yeah that's really where why we were there and because of the time constraints um we needed to have multiple diggers at different parts we tried to keep them as far away as possible so that one digger exploding didn't blow up all the others and uh, so we tried to, to make sure we didn't expose mines that were too close to each other so um and we just had to dig all night all day for the entire weekend um, which was kind of exhausting, really. And then, but yeah, once, and then you go in. 
Yeah, well, the idea, I was in one of the remote controls, so as soon as we've exposed that the, we, we've x-rayed and, and, and taken um, taken readings so that we know roughly where these, these pipe mines are, we're not entirely sure of the exact depth, so it's kind of very gently digging till we find the start of this. And they're always, they're, they're put in at an angle. Um, so we then had to expose a bit, and then I had to check that we have actually hit the right bit. Um, so I would then, everybody stops digging, um, while we would then go out and look, and then everyone back under armour again, and then we can continue digging. And when we fully expose the mine, and then again we shut down all the digging, one person gets out and goes and inspects the mine to make sure that um, it's it's there and it's, we've got all of it out. But then you are the person that goes in yes. and actually diffuses the mines and makes yeah, you actually right up. You and actually you had, had your hands on them. You actually had to go and climb down into the trench and and check that yeah, absolutely that you have got. I mean, one of the mines I did was empty. It was it ended just basically being an empty tube. So you need to either discredit that, um, or you need to say, yeah, this is what I've got. This is how much explosive I've got. This is what I need to do. So yes. I feel like you're playing this down a little bit. Like you were actually the person that went in and I was the one. Them. Yeah, it was the very first time that I had to go and walk alone towards a live bomb. Yeah, because you keep saying we had to defuse and we had to do yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were the single person that was down there next to the mines. Yeah, next to the mine, looking at and, and checking on, on, making sure that we got it all out. Was there ever a moment during that you're thinking, like, this, I'm, pretty cl- I'm pretty close to a, to a pretty powerful beast here? Yeah, the first time um, when I got, had to get out, and, and go off on my own towards a live bomb. It's the first time, I'd only just qualified it, so it's the first time I kind of took that long walk mm. um, on my own. And we'd been all night, it was February, and we, it was quite cold, but inside a, an armoured vehicle with, with four of us, uh, three of us rather, it was, it, was, uh, it was quite warm. So I got out into the, into the you know, two o'clock in the morning in February, um, and I was suddenly discovered I'm freezing. Um, and then I then have to walk, and it's a starlit night. Um, I mean, we've got lots of um, lighting towers around, but it's very quiet. And I, I worked at an airport before, so I felt familiar being on an airport in the middle of the night. Mm. It was just being outside and hearing the, the diesel generators going and all these lights, but I'm the only person that's not safe behind armour. So it felt very weird to be the only person that's walking towards this thing. Uh, and everybody else is watching me on cameras and um, sitting behind their lovely steel plating. And there's a reason why they're sitting behind steel plating yeah. and watching on their cameras. Yeah, that's because it could go bang. So, um, so yeah, no, walking towards it, it was it was very odd. Um, I felt very, um, I felt very much on my own. And it was the one time that the, the the lads had said to me, you know, off off you go, boss. You know, we've done our bit. We've 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 dug it with the diggers. You go do your bit now. And I thought this is this is the momentous moment. This is the time that you know first woman's actually going to go and do something. So as I got out and having asked permission to get out from under my armored vehicle and, and go towards it, and they just went yeah yeah off you go. So I thought okay this is this is cool. Um, and it's only when I got back in again I thought oh that's the first time a woman's ever done that. So yeah no that was kind of cool. But uh, it, like it, the news got hold of that as well, didn't they? And yeah, well, the news covered the whole thing because it was the biggest evacuation since World War Two for this, this Eastley Airport. So um, there was a big news uh, conference planned for the Monday morning, and I had hoped that I, I, the fact that I was there wasn't going to really get mentioned um, because the big thing was uh, the evacuation. Um, but no, it did make it did make big news. 
Um, you made big news. Yes, made very big news. Um, and, and the headline was, you know, uh, Army sends woman to clear mined airport. Uh, so the big news wasn't the fact that we've done this massive thing. It was that a woman did it. Um, I mean, you wouldn't get a headline like that now. You weren't happy about that, but isn't it kind of cool? Like, isn't that kind of... Because women will see that headline and think, that's kind of cool. That's that's quite inspiring. At the time, I thought so, yes. But now, and I, it just seems such a long time ago where the biggest news was that a woman has done something. Um, it, now, when I see it, it, it just feels like a long time ago. Mm. Because we wouldn't think twice about it now. But isn't but it like, time. isn't it almost like it's not... We're not we're not being surprised that a woman's done it, but no. it's like it's just, this is pretty awesome. At the time, it was it was a huge thing. Yeah, yes. it was it was a big thing at the time. What's your what are your thoughts on Hollywood? Like, have you seen the Hurt Locker? I haven't. I've it, been told not to not to watch it. Really? Is it that? I bomb disposal people because they said I will I will shout at the telly and get very very upset by is it. Is that right? Yeah. So I've deliberately never watched it. As a general thing, what what's your thoughts on Hollywood? Uh, or, or movies in general and bombs and stuff. Well, they always have the same basic idea of that you you find a bomb and it's it's got a digital clock that's counting down the seconds to detonation, so you know how long you've got to defuse it. And it's very easy to access the contents of the bomb because you just sort of quickly unclip the cover and you'll find there's a, a blue wire, a red wire, and, and a little flashing light to tell you that it's live. And the hero, all they need to do is to is to unscrew the cover and then just cut one of the wires, mm. and then the little light goes out, and the world is safe again. Um, whereas in reality, you wouldn't go, you know, screws that say there are come on, you know, that say, you know, touch me, I dare you. Mm. I mean, so you'd never go in through the, through that sort of route. Um, and we were certainly taught not to to rush to go cutting any wires at all. You've got to know what what it is you're cutting, because uh, any of those wires could be a collapsing circuit. That's the wire that's stopping it going off. Not so don't go just snipping happily away. Mm. You need to know what's in it. Um, and so, yeah, they, and they never carry out controlled explosions, which is what we actually do, um, out of preference, um, to doing anything else. So, so yeah, no, Hollywood likes to get it all horribly wrong. When I'm thinking about the airport, obviously there's a lot of security at the airport now. Yes. And, and hijackers would, there's a thing in movies where they'd, they'd have bombs, like, strapped to them and stuff. Yes. Is that even possible these days? Like, would you, would anyone ever be able to get onto an airport? onto an aeroplane with a with a bomb vest or anything like that um well yeah i but i mean i was in airport security before i became a bomb disposal officer. yeah and i had to do a teaching practice at sandhurst and one of the the subject i i chose to teach on was how to get bits of bomb components through the scanners at the airport um and yes it is possible to get things on um to get bomb components through the scanners um, but the difficulty is getting it in enough quantity and getting all of the bits because only having two of the bits doesn't really help. Uh, I see. You need to get all the bits and you need to be able to then create your bomb and put it back together. And the things with, with bombs on aircraft is that you can you can bring down a jumbo with, with something the size of a hand grenade, but only if you put it in the right place. So normally uh, a small bomb on, a, on, a, on an aircraft wouldn't jeopardise necessarily, jeopardise the aircraft itself. It has to be in the right place. I'm not going to ask you where to put the bomb. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, it's difficult to do it from the cabin. So, um, so yeah, it's... it's And also, bombs used to go, certainly the Air India bomb, they, used, they, they were in the luggage. They were in the hold luggage. Um, and those and screening will screen out bombs in hold luggage. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's, it's so much safer now because the luggage is screened. 
and therefore the only way to get it in is to carry it in and then you're very limited as to what kind of bomb and how yeah. effective it would be. Being the first female bomb disposal officer in the UK, that was a first for you, but you've also had a first at Cambridge University, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, sort of 30 years later, um, which is kind of kind of cool, really. Um, no, I'm, I am the university marshal and the first woman to hold the post since uh, it was created, which was it was created on the 7th of December, 1620. So the first woman in 400 years to be marshal. What is that? What even is that? Um, the marshal is... Sorry um, for being ignorant. No, no. <laughs> uh, most of Cambridge don't know what the marshal does, um, or, or spell it correctly. Um, no, um, the university has a constabulary, and we're one of the oldest constabularies in the world. Uh, and they date from sixteen, uh, from uh, sorry, 1825. Um, and as marshal, I lead the constabulary. Um, and we work, we do a lot of ceremonial things, so all graduation ceremonies, honorary degrees, various sermons and bits and pieces. Uh, so um, we do ceremonial work. Um, but we also support the proctors in defending freedom of speech. So if there will be a contentious lecturer, we make sure that they get to speak and that any protesters also get to protest. Um, the same with demonstrations, sit-ins, all forms of occupations and uh, general student protests. Um, so that's, I mean, that's a really important role in, in uh, universities at the moment. Mm, so, um, so yeah, the we have 26 constables. They wear top hat and tails. We carry, they carry um, ancient weapons. Um, I carry a silver mace that's 400 years old. Um, I mean, what are you doing with the mace, though? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, don't, I, just, I just carry it, it's fine. Um, so, uh, no, I carry one of the, one of the university maces. Um, so if anyone on campus is drinking past midnight, <laughs> you, wa- well, you rock up with your mace. <laughs> that would be cool, wouldn't it? Lucy, thank you very much for You're coming welcome. on the show. You're welcome, thank you. And thank you very much for listening. Lucy's book, Lighting the Fuse, is out now. If you like this interview, you will love the book. And if you also, if you like this interview, make sure you leave us a review and tell us what your thoughts were. And we'll be back again next week.